Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, August 31st, 2023, the 953rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So yesterday... We talked about the process and the purpose of exercising extreme skepticism when it comes to information that you are receiving from so-called or perceived authoritative sources. 
By that, I mean information that is fed to you from the propaganda media or from culture and the entertainment industry or from the experts or people who are placed in positions of authority and occasionally even from certain peer groups, whether they're your co-workers or the people in the homeowners association or the still sleeping standard issue villagers who are parents of children at the same school your kid goes to. There are all sorts of ideas we have and beliefs we form based on received information from authority. All of them believe it, or that person in power believes it, or this expert or media source believes it. Therefore, it's probably true. And we incorporate this idea or this belief or some thought process or moral into our thinking without being able to verify or substantiate it on our own. There are a lot of things that we believe other people simply wouldn't lie about, or even that systems of power wouldn't lie about, because they just couldn't get away with it. The truth of what they're saying is so obvious and so broadly understood and seemingly reflective of this world that we all share that there is no way anyone could actually be lying about it. The truth is ultimately that you can't be totally certain about much of anything. And because the authoritative sources are so consistently wrong and mistaken and so consistently looking to exploit the beliefs that they are creating intentionally, the manipulation, it's best if we only form beliefs around the things that we are observing and discovering ourselves about the empirical, observable reality and what we can glean from actual trusted sources in our real lives around us for going creating foundational beliefs on information received from authority that we can't verify. Now, as a story or narrative develops in public and we discover that all the foundational elements of a story are themselves riddled with doubt, we should not only assume that the story based on all those doubtful foundational elements is likely untrue, we should consider that there are beliefs even more foundational than these elements that might themselves be false. And it becomes worthwhile and reasonable to cast into doubt those even more foundational elements that we believed or assumed couldn't possibly be false. And as an example of this principle, I used the story that we've been told about Wagner, quote unquote, warlord and former catering company operator and movie producer and manager of Russian troll farm, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is either dead or alive, according to the media, either did or did not try to stage a coup to overthrow Vladimir Putin, and may or may not have ever existed in the first place, which is a question worth considering when so many foundational elements of a story are called into doubt, and the overriding story is essentially preposterous. Now, I attempted to make clear that I am not saying Yevgeny Prigozhin never existed, because of course I don't know that, and then I'm asserting a positive claim that I cannot substantiate. But what I can do is call into doubt every reason that we believe Yevgeny Prigozhin exists and turn the question to you, if you believe he does exist, how could you go about proving it? 
And of course, there's absolutely no way to answer that other than calling on reporting from mainstream media sources or videos about a guy who those same mainstream media sources tell you is a movie producer who produces political and war propaganda. The videos, of course, coming from that very guy who produces political and war propaganda. So that's your proof he exists. Now, if that's enough for you, all good. If you understand it's possible that he doesn't exist, but you want a bias toward believing that the video and these stories are enough to substantiate that he probably does, again, all good. And maybe you might be right. But to pretend you know is dishonest because you don't know. And it turns out a lot of things in the world are like that. So not 24 hours after I recorded and posted that episode, we get more Yevgeny Prigozhin news. This is from the New York Post this morning. Everything's okay. Prigozhin talks assassination attempts in newly released video fueling rumors he's alive. Newly released video eerily shows Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin bragging about surviving assassination attempts, further fueling conspiracies that the Russian warlord may still be alive. The footage was released on a Telegram channel linked to Prigozhin's mercenary group on Wednesday, a week after he is understood to have died in a fiery plane crash. And if you'll remember from yesterday, the reporting that we read from the BBC noted that reports of his plane crash and death also came from an unnamed source on social media supposedly linked to the Wagner group. Now, the Telegram channel they keep referencing is called Gray Zone. This is not the media organization linked to journalist Max Blumenthal. That is G-R-A-Y. This is Gray spelled G-R-E-Y. And the Telegram channel is t.me slash G-R-E-Y underscore zone. They posted this video of Prigozhin. It's about 30 seconds long. It's not in English, but here it is. Как у меня дела? Сейчас выходные, вторая половина августа 23 -го года. Нахожусь в Африке, поэтому любители обсуждения моей ликвидации, интимной жизни, заработков там или еще чего-нибудь, собственно говоря, все в порядке. The New York Post has some of the translation. It says, for those who are discussing whether I'm alive or not, how I'm doing, Right now, it's the weekend, second half of August, 2023. I'm in Africa. Prigozhin, 62, says in the clip released by the Wagner-linked Gray Zone Telegram channel. So for people who like to discuss my liquidation or my private life, how much I earn or whatever else, everything's okay, he says, with a dismissive wave of his hand. The footage was posted without comment, including details on exactly when or where it was filmed. However, Prigozhin's camouflage clothing and matching hat, along with the watch on his right wrist, matched his appearance in a video released on August 21st, seemingly from Africa. That had been his first public address since President Vladimir Putin branded him a traitor over his short-lived June mutiny and the last before he was declared dead in the private jet crash two days later. Now, did he have a short-lived June mutiny? According to the official story in the central narrative, yes, he did. 
According to reality, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that that's true or that it was even possibly true. The entire story is preposterous. The idea that they took over a town in a military base, similarly preposterous. They did so without any blood being shed. The idea that Prigozhin was going to march on Moscow and overthrow Putin, similarly preposterous. And the idea that he could just go hang out in Belarus with Putin's pal Lukashenko right after that is also preposterous. There is no reason to believe any of that story, which takes away immediately the motivation for Prigozhin to be taken out in the first place. And that is very important. Now, he's also in Africa, according to this video and according to other reports before that. Now, was he in Africa? Is he in Africa? I don't know. I'm not 100 percent convinced the guy exists. So I'm going to exercise skepticism about each and every part of it. But if he's down there in Africa two days before his private jet crash in Russia, knowing that the media was reporting that Putin wanted to kill him for two months, why would he go back and fly into Russia? But back to the Post article. Prigozhin's weekend reference in the latest clip suggested that it must have been shot between August 19th and August 20th, only days before he and other top Wagner commanders and bodyguards were killed in a plane crash in the Tver region on August 23rd. The Grey Zone Channel earlier released what it described as some of Prigozhin's last photos from Africa, showing him posing with a large group of young black men. The accompanying post stated that the images were taken in the Central African Republic, quote, not long before his departure for Russia. While the Grey Zone made no suggestion that Prigozhin is still alive, the timing of the release and the strongman's comments about surviving liquidation attempts only added fuel to already widespread conspiracies that he is still alive. And how about that little bit of media bias? Why is it a conspiracy that he is still alive when the story that he is dead is totally unproven? Isn't it odd that because of the bias we give toward the default explanation and toward the authoritative sources that we imagine it is conspiratorial thinking and totally unreasonable, totally unwarranted to suggest that the man might be alive when there is absolutely no proof from the authoritative sources that he's actually dead? Why isn't that the conspiracy theory? That is the story that came from nothing. This is all based on a report from Russia's Civil Aviation Authority. We're told not to believe any official sources coming out of Russia, that it's all Russian propaganda. But now we are conspiracy theorists to dispute that, even though there is at least better proof, not that this constitutes proof, but more evidence that he was in Africa. He returned to Russia knowing that Putin wanted to kill him. Is that what happened? <laughs> OK, guys. Yep, you're right. I'm the conspiracy theorist. Among them is Dr. Valerie Solovey. This is the man we discussed yesterday, a former professor at the prestigious Moscow State Institute of International Relations, repeating a widely shared conspiracy that the warlord was not on the crashed jet. His body double was flying instead of him. By the way, Vladimir Putin is perfectly aware of that. The analyst said in a recent YouTube interview, claiming that the real Wagner chief is alive, well and free. The former academic said that Prigozhin plans to exact revenge, quote, on the people who planned to destroy him. So he's going to launch another Wagner coup against Russia, apparently. 
The Russian Investigative Committee probing the aviation disaster has confirmed, citing genetic testing, that Prigozhin was among the 10 people who died in the crash. So to believe that, we have to believe that there was a plane crash. They recovered genetic material that they could distinguish from one to the other. They did genetic testing on it, which is a totally accurate system, even though it isn't, and that they matched that genetic test to prior genetic tests of Yevgeny Prigozhin, found a match and said, yep, that's definitely him. Let's make sure to tell the world that it's definitely him and couldn't have been anything else. I mean, they couldn't get all that wrong, right? If they reported all of that, it must all be right. Like if we find out that Prigozhin is actually alive, they can say these other things were rumors, but there's no way to say that the genetic testing was a rumor. Is there like that would either just be a fact or not. They would make it up or not. If Prigozhin's alive, then there's absolutely no way that a genetic test confirmed that he was on a crashed plane and killed. That's not something that can happen by mistake. That's not a rumor. That's not something that is held in doubt, but reported anyway, which would be fine if the doubt was expressed. That would just be an out and out lie that then should call into question the process of genetic testing itself and how the process of genetic testing is used to manipulate your beliefs when it's made part of a narrative. You would immediately have proof that genetic testing is eligible for use in a global propaganda campaign. People would think it's crazy to argue with the reports of genetic testing. But if Prigozhin's alive, that would be the most obviously falsifiable part of this story. And about that genetic test, which side would you bias toward more? That the test was wrong, as they would then say, or that they never did it in the first place and just told you they did? And if that's the sort of thing that they're willing to do, how many times have they lied about that before? <laughs> Let's not pretend it's the first time. Now, just so we're clear, the options are, Yevgeny Prigozhin is alive, Yevgeny Prigozhin is dead, and Yevgeny Prigozhin never existed. We don't know which one of those is true. One of the three must be true. It also seems very clear that what we have here is a battle between stories, and there are reasons why certain people would want each of these stories to be the one that wins out and then is believed regardless of the truth status of either of these stories or whether he's alive, dead, or never existed in the first place. Now, regardless of any of that, it is true that all of this looks very, very bad for the global regime's propaganda media apparatus. They came out with an unsubstantiated story. The story was called into question. They responded with more unsubstantiated narrative elements looking to support the original story. And the weight of evidence in the counter narrative, if it hasn't completely wiped out that first story, it has at least made it obvious that the media has no idea what's happening. And in an information war where that global regime's propaganda media represents one of the enemy's most powerful weapons, further reason to cast doubt on the global regime's propaganda media is a win for one side.
which in itself is a good enough reason for all of this happening. All that is required to see this play out in real life is for the members of the media to rely on sources they believe they can sell as authoritative, feeding them a story that they believe is going to help their narrative element. They get told that Prigozhin is dead, Putin felt threatened, Putin took this drastic move to assassinate one of his own. This is going to cause upheaval in the Russia-Ukraine situation, upheaval in Putin's grip on power and his image across Russia. Well, that sounds like enough reason to run with it. And so they did. And now they look like the complete and total propagandistic hacks that most people are beginning to understand they are. You are seeing that the only source of your belief in the existence of a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin themselves have no idea whether or not the man is alive or dead. Will we ever find out? Who knows? It's entirely possible the story will just evaporate into the ether, never to be heard of ever again. They have taken one character. He is now off the show. We're starting a new season. The old boss was pronounced dead. Now we have a new boss and who knows, maybe in episode eight, the old boss will return. Maybe he'll return in three seasons. Maybe he'll never return. It'll all just be open for interpretation. This is from Tuesday in Breitbart. Russia appoints Wagner chief in Africa to replace Prigozhin. Russian officials on Monday appointed General Andrei Avrianov, head of covert offensive operations for Russian military intelligence to supervise the mercenary Wagner Group's valuable operations in Africa following the reported death of its founders, Yevgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin, in a plane crash last week. So Breitbart still saying it's the reported death that is called being responsible in reporter speak. It takes for granted that the story is correct, even though they're passively admitting that they don't know. Some global intelligence analysts thought Avrianov might have played some role in creating the vacancy he just filled because the most notorious, quote, covert offensive operation, end quote, he has been linked to is the poisoning of double agent Sergei Skripal on British soil in March 2018. Ooh, very infamous. He has supposedly poisoned a double agent who we never knew existed. Until right now, unless, of course, we were paying attention to this sort of thing in March 2018, and there was a little run of stories. There's a whole Wikipedia entry on the poisoning with countless sources from 2018. Here's the introduction. The heading is Poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal. The poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal, also known as the Salisbury poisonings, because you got to have a catchy name for it. You can't expect people in the West to remember Sergei and Yulia Skripal, but they will remember the Salisbury poisonings. Was a botched assassination attempt to poison Sergei Skripal, a former Russian military officer and double agent for the British intelligence agencies in the city of Salisbury, England, on 4 March 2018. Sergei and his daughter Yulia were poisoned by means of a Novichok nerve agent. Both spent several weeks in hospital in a critical condition before being discharged. A police officer, Nick Bailey, was also taken into intensive care after attending the incident 
and was later discharged. The British government accused Russia of attempted murder and announced a series of punitive measures against Russia, including the expulsion of diplomats. The UK's official assessment of the incident was supported by 28 other countries, which responded similarly. So countries that did not themselves investigate trusted British intelligence and said, yeah, they definitely got it right. And then none other than Bellingcat identified who the Russians were who carried out this poisoning. The Wikipedia article also adds that Novichok, the Soviet era nerve agent used in the attack, was placed on the list of banned substances by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And all of this, of course, occurred while they were cooking up COVID in Ukraine and China. And hey, in the US too? Yeah, probably. But especially Ukraine. I mean, remember, Barack Obama went over there to celebrate how they had taken over these Soviet era bio labs in Ukraine back in 2005. Kind of makes you think maybe that's where the Novichok came from. I mean, we're being told that it came from Soviet labs just like that. And we're just supposed to understand that it happened before the U.S. took them over or at labs in Russia that the U.S. hasn't taken over. But no matter what, you're not allowed to think that it is one of the Soviet-era bioweapons labs that the U.S. has taken over. They would never do that. It's very clear, according to Bellingcat, that it was the Russians, and 28 other countries agree, even though they definitely didn't check. But let's go back to Breitbart. This is a story about a new man taking over the Wagner Group, but Somehow we are now in a story about the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in 2018. What are they setting up? Skripal and his daughter Yulia were found unconscious on a bench in the city of Salisbury and remained in critical condition for weeks, barely surviving exposure to a military-grade Soviet-era nerve agent called Novichok. The same nerve weapon was used in an unsuccessful attempt to assassinate Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in Siberia in 2020. And you know that story is true because HBO and other companies have made so many documentaries about it. They wouldn't go to all that trouble just to paint Putin as a bad guy who assassinates his enemies with poison. He would wait until they're flying back from Africa and into Russia and shoot them down with Russian air defenses. The UK Daily Mail last week quoted British intelligence sources who thought Prigozhin's, quote, days were numbered before he was killed in a plane crash. And there was, quote, a lot of discussion in the intelligence community that Avrianov might be the man doing the numbering. So the intelligence community has some chatter and rumor that this man, Avrianov, might be the man tasked with killing Prigozhin on Putin's behalf because he was mad about the coup that didn't happen. Avrianov was known to dislike Prigozhin, and last month he was actually overheard introducing himself to African leaders as Prigozhin's likely replacement during a summit in St. Petersburg. Channels linked to Wagner on the social media site Telegram said the meetings were part of a Kremlin displacement operation to oust Prigozhin, the Daily Mail noted. And isn't it incredible that our global state propaganda media is 
trusting so much this Telegram group that it says is linked to Wagner. Normally, we're told you can't trust Telegram groups because they don't have speech moderation. Everybody knows it's all conspiracy theorists on that site. These media outlets tell us that. And then sometimes it's the opposite. And you can only trust them because they happen to agree with British intelligence chatter. Skipping ahead. Ukrainian media last Friday quoted two British intelligence sources who said Avrianov had a long-standing hostile relationship with Prigozhin and was leading an operation to replace Wagner's mercenaries in Africa with some 20,000 Russian military personnel. Ukrainian intelligence is reportedly investigating if Avrianov played a role in sabotaging Prigozhin's plane. I thought it was shot down with Russia's air defenses, apparently now it has been sabotaged. African officials told the Wall Street Journal on Friday they expected Prigozhin would swiftly be replaced with no disruption to the security services Wagner provides them. The Africans generally regarded Wagner as a covert arm of the Russian state. So they're a covert arm of the Russian state, but they can also be used by other countries if those countries pay the proper price. And that is true, even though Russia right now is donating money and grain to all these African countries. We signed up for a partnership with the Russian state, said Central African Republic Minister Pascal Koyagbele. Hopefully European security officials worried about the risk that Prigozhin loyalists within Wagner would violently resist a Russian government takeover or take their anger out on the locals with more violence against civilians. The article is telling you that members of the regime are proposing potential stories in the future. That is narrative seeding. Listen to this again. European security officials worried about the quote unquote risk that Prigozhin loyalists within Wagner. So the people within Wagner who do not want to follow this new leader, that they would violently resist a Russian government takeover of Wagner. They would basically say, hey, screw you, Russia. I know you're paying us and also controlling our organization. And no one in the organization has any question over that. But we really love this Yevgeny Prigozhin guy. We're not going to stand for this new guy, Avrianov. And to show you how angry we are, we're going to be violent against these African locals. European security officials are worrying about that to the media. More narrative seating ahead. Dissent in the Wagner ranks could also create an opportunity for jihadist forces in countries like Mali, which have grown dependent on Russian mercenaries for security after turning against European partners. A particularly sticky situation awaits Avrianov in Sudan, where Russia is formally allied with Junta Boss, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. But Wagner forces have been assisting his rival in the brutal Sudanese civil war, militia commander Mohammed Hamdan Daglo. According to these European sources, Putin has been maneuvering Avrianov into position as the new Wagner chief for several weeks, even before Prigozhin's death, which apparently Breitbart now takes as just a solid fact. They're not even saying alleged or reported. It's just 
something was going on before his death, which happened last week. Everybody knows it. Russian officials have been telling their African contacts that Wagner would be nationalized ever since Prigozhin aborted his mutiny. So it was originally a private army run by Prigozhin, sponsored by Russia, doing the bidding of Russia because Prigozhin and Putin were good friends. But then Prigozhin decided to launch a coup that he didn't actually launch. Putin got so mad that he decided to launch the coup that never happened. Putin then later killed him, but it was actually this guy, Avaryanov. And now Avaryanov has taken over this military unit that is now part of the Russian army. He was appointed by Russia after having been a general who was head of covert offensive operations for Russian military intelligence. Does that all make sense? <laughs> if you said yes, okay. So we are told that Wagner is in Africa. Is Prigozhin in Africa? Is he alive? Is he dead? Did he ever exist? We don't know. But if he's alive, he might be in Africa. The video from before he died made it look like he's in Africa. The man who says he's still alive says he's probably in Africa, but he can't tell us where. And his replacement, Avaryanov, is in Africa, now running Wagner, who is in Africa. And Prigozhin either is or is not in Africa, but seems not to be running Wagner. Although if he's in Africa and was just running Wagner like 10 or 11 days ago, did he really get killed in Russia and now he's no longer running Wagner in Africa, even though he might be in Africa? And not dead? Gosh, it's just so hard to figure out. Now, we talked a week or so ago about the overthrow of the illegitimate regime government in Niger and how France was mad and the regime was mad and certain countries might rush to the defense of the French colonialists who were then told they would be met with overwhelming force and no one was going to threaten the success of the so-called coup in Niger. This is from Tuesday in Zero Hedge. France, ready to support military action in Niger, won't pull ambassador, according to Macron. France is defying the orders of Niger's junta leaders who have ordered France's ambassador to immediately leave the country. So France's ambassador is standing up to this military junta saying, you'll have to kill me before I ever leave Niger, apparently. On Friday, French ambassador Sylvain Ite was issued a letter telling him to exit the country within 48 hours. But Paris has said it will not recognize the putschists, but instead supports, quote, a president who has not resigned, end quote, according to fresh statements of French president Emmanuel Macron. Our policy is the right one. It depends on the courage of President Mohamed Bazoum, the commitment of our diplomats, of our ambassador on the ground, who is remaining despite pressure. Macron affirmed in a speech to a gathering of French ambassadors in Paris on Monday. Imagine being a French ambassador and the so-called French president, Emmanuel Macron, told you that, hey, if you happen to be in a country where there is a coup and the country is taken over by what we're calling a military junta 
and we are threatening military action against that country and that country tells you that you have to leave immediately, you know what? We're going to keep you there. Kind of takes away some of the prestige of that easy job of being an ambassador. He also dismissed assertions that there's reason to be afraid of Niger's military rulers, given Ambassador Itte could face arrest or even violence. Also, after earlier this summer, the French embassy was attacked and set on fire by pro-coup demonstrators. So, hey, ambassadors, thanks for your service. You're on your own. One shouldn't give in to the narrative used by the coup leaders that consists of saying France has become our enemy, Macron said in a speech. He also blamed Niger's military coup leaders for the country's current economic woes and political instability. Yeah, it's the guys who just took over that created all the problems, <laughs> not, not their colonial overlords who have controlled the country for all time. The problem of Nigerians today is the coup leaders who put them in danger because they are abandoning the fight against terrorism. Because they are abandoning a policy that was economically good for the population and they are in the process of losing international funding that was helping them emerge from poverty. So to parse that, the regime was in control of Niger. Niger was in poverty. The international funding that the regime was pumping into Niger brought certain segments of Niger's population out of poverty, and those segments, of course, would be the ones financially incentivized to support the global regime's agenda in Niger. So those people were brought out of poverty by international funding. And some of that funding was coming from places like the United States, who were flooding all that funding into Niger to help them fight, quote unquote, terrorism, which they are now unable to do. Kind of sounds like the regime is taking its ball and going home. Well, fine. If you're not going to fight the people that we call terrorists, we're going to stop sending you money. Do you imagine that the people of Niger in general were the beneficiaries of that money? They were probably benefiting the same way that West Virginia coal miners were benefiting from the same sort of money being pumped into the United States for the same sort of agenda. I know you've heard that song, rich men north of Niger's southwestern border with Burkina Faso. So essentially, the global regime says we are no longer going to save you from us if you don't allow us to control your country. But more importantly, Russian media has picked up on an important part of the speech where Macron said he is willing to support military intervention if it is decided by a regional bloc of African states. France is set to support any efforts, including military intervention, made by the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, to restore constitutional order in Niger, French President Emmanuel Macron said on Monday. We support the diplomatic and, if it is decided, the military activity of ECOWAS, he said, adding that Paris will not drop its support for legitimately elected president Mohamed Bazoum. Now, Mohamed Bazoum was just as legitimately elected as Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar a few years ago, or our own fake president, the illegitimate Joe Biden. ECOWAS has made the threat several times, but lately has waffled in the face of Niger's warning that it is ready to fight if invaded. Niger also has a couple of regional supporters in the countries of Mali and Burkina Faso, 
also both run by juntas. These two outside powers would likely stand by Niger's side against the ECOWAS coalition. Now, that could not be clearer. The ECOWAS coalition is a coalition run by the global regime in Africa. These other countries rallying to one another's support are countries in the process of kicking out the global regime. They are currently under the control of their military. This is all being called a series of coups. The groups are being called military juntas. But what we are never told is that the people of these nations actually support the military juntas and not the illegitimate leaders installed by the global regime. You can see in place right now the exact dichotomy I have been discussing for well over two years. If you've been listening to the show for a long time, you know how many times I've mentioned Myanmar. I've mentioned Burkina Faso. So we have widespread instability across Africa as the balance of power shifts between the global regime and these countries kicking the global regime out, most of whom, if not all of whom, are backed by Russia and or China. Again, I've been discussing this dynamic for well over two years now since the military junta deposed the illegitimate leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, an ally of Barack Obama, the Clintons and George Soros in 2021. They kicked out Soros. They seized the Soros organization's funding in Myanmar. I mentioned at the time that if the global regime could have kept Myanmar under their control, they would have. And this same process has repeated over and over and over again throughout the world. Now we see it very focused on the African continent. Now, this article just so happened to appear in one of the regime's elite media mouthpieces, foreignpolicy.com, just yesterday. How UN peacekeeping accidentally fuels Africa's coups. Wait, what? The United Nations peacekeeping forces are destabilizing the region themselves? That's crazy. Now, the UN peacekeeping forces are the blue helmets, and they have a pretty awful history. They're basically used to go in as a military police force into nations around the world so that the global regime can get the outcomes they want and quell these sorts of uprisings. The only thing that makes this acceptable to anyone is the fact that they're from the United Nations, which we all pretend is some kind of good organization tasked with actually uniting nations for a more peaceful world. And because it's called peacekeeping. But if you go to their Wikipedia page and you go to the section called crimes by peacekeepers, the first heading is peacekeeping, human trafficking and forced prostitution. Reporters witnessed a rapid increase of prostitution in Cambodia and Mozambique after U.N. peacekeeping forces moved in. In the 1996 U.N. study, the impact of armed conflict on children, the former first lady of Mozambique, Grasha Machel, documented in six out of 12 country studies on sexual exploitation of children in situations of armed conflict prepared for the present report. The arriving of peacekeeping troops has been associated with a rapid increase in child prostitution. Oh, what? Gita Segal spoke out in 2004 about the fact that prostitution and sex abuse occurs whenever humanitarian intervention efforts are established. She observed the issue with the U.N. is that peacekeeping operations, unfortunately, 
seems to be doing the same thing that other militaries do. Even the guardians have to be guarded. Oh, other militaries do that, too. Are those other militaries also serving the global regime's agenda and their actual human trafficking? How is it possible that the United Nations defines what human rights abuses are, decides who to accuse of human rights abuses, and then meets out punishment for human rights abuses, but somehow can't stop committing human rights atrocities on their own? Gosh, it's weird. Human rights violations in United Nations missions. The following table chart illustrates confirmed accounts of crimes and human rights violations committed by United Nations soldiers, peacekeepers, and employees. And it lists the Second Congo War, the Somali Civil War, Sierra Leone Civil War, Eritrean Ethiopian War, Burundi Civil War, Rwanda Civil War, the Second Liberian Civil War, the Second Sudanese Civil War, the Ivory Coast's Civil War the 2004 Haitian coup d'etat, the Kosovo war, the Israeli-Lebanese conflict. My, 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 that is quite a few instances of UN peacekeeping human rights abuses. And it's not just the UN soldiers, it's also peacekeepers and employees. And that subject, of course, is its own rabbit hole that you can go quite a ways down and find all sorts of reprehensible behavior by UN peacekeeping missions. And before we get into the foreign policy article, it's worth noting that just on Monday of this week, the Associated Press ran this headline. The UN is undertaking an unprecedented six-month withdrawal of nearly 13,000 peacekeepers from Mali, and I'm sure that they will be sorely missed by the people of Mali. The United Nations is in the throes of what Secretary General Antonio Guterres calls an unprecedented six-month exit from Mali on orders of the West African nation's military junta, which has brought in mercenaries from Russia's Wagner Group to help fight an Islamic insurgency. What? So these Russian nations are kicking out the global regime and even kicking out the United Nations peacekeeping missions, and they're going to continue fighting terrorists, but with Russia and Wagner helping. And I'm not going to go through the whole article, but you are more than welcome to. Mali has been in turmoil since a 2012 military coup, which was followed by rebels in the north forming an Islamic state two months later. The extremist rebels. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that a regime propaganda outlet just flipped from rebels forming an Islamic state to extremist rebels in the space of one sentence? Are they trying to say that all Muslims are extremists? This is quite Islamophobic, but it's okay because it's an authoritative source. The extremist rebels were forced from power in the north with the help of a what? French-led military operation, but they moved from the arid north to more populated central Mali in 2015 and remain active. So you got to believe them. They're there somewhere. In August 2020, Mali's president was overthrown in a coup that included an army colonel who carried out a second coup and was sworn in as president in June 2021. He developed ties to Russia's military and the Wagner group, whose head Yevgeny Prigozhin was reportedly killed in a plane crash on a flight from Moscow last week. 
The U.N. deployed peacekeepers in 2013 and MINUSMA, which is what they call that peacekeeping operation, has become the third most dangerous U.N. mission in the world with more than 300 personnel killed. That's crazy that they're not being welcomed as liberators. Guterres, by the way, the same man who said that we were entering a period of global boiling, said the logistics of moving troops and equipment is further constrained by the presence of, quote, terrorist armed groups and the recent military takeover of Niger, a key transit country. So they've lost Niger. They can't move through Niger anymore. Now the UN peacekeeping operation can't do its work in Mali, apparently. What were they doing? Like leading a human trafficking operation through Niger or something? I mean, what am I saying? That is a conspiracy theory. A UN peacekeeping mission would never involve itself in human trafficking or child exploitation, even though they have countless times in the past. One might think, for instance, that the UN peacekeeping operation exists to support UN migration trafficking efforts in countries that don't allow this to happen by choice. So we're told clashes are happening between the terrorists in Mali, supported by the Wagner mercenaries and the UN peacekeeping mission. France's deputy UN ambassador, Natalie Broadhurst, told the council the clashes in Bear occurred with, quote, the participation of Wagner mercenaries, end quote, and were a serious violation of a ceasefire and the 2015 peace agreement. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield also expressed alarm at the resumption of hostilities in northern Mali, including at Bear. She says, additionally, Minusma's withdrawal limits the ability of the international community to protect civilians from the predations of Wagner, whose activities contribute to greater insecurity in the country. Russia's deputy U.N. ambassador, Dmitry Polyansky, made no mention of Wagner, but said, quote, Russia will continue to provide Mali and other interested African partners with comprehensive assistance on a bilateral, equal and mutually respectful basis. So the U.N. peacekeeping mission is being moved out and Wagner is moving in to provide stability, doing so with the permission of the military junta which happens to be supported by the people. Sorry to say it, global regime. It sounds like you lost another one. But let's get back to foreignpolicy.com, how UN peacekeeping accidentally fuels Africa's coups. On July 26th, General Abdurahamane Chiani detained Niger's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, and installed himself as the head of the so-called National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, a military junta. You see, he was democratically elected, and now this military junta is a threat to our democracy. Less than a week later, on July 30th, the Economic Community of West African States issued the junta an ultimatum, return the former president to power within one week or face the threat of additional sanctions and military force. The region has experienced a wave of coups in recent years, and ECOWAS is rightly concerned about their spread. But we're fairly familiar at this point with the backstory of the situation here. So let's focus on the peacekeeping aspect right now. 
Since the end of the Cold War, the international community and the United Nations have increasingly funded the militaries of undemocratic or weakly democratic countries to feed the growing demand for peacekeeping. Oh, the people of Africa cry out for U.N. peacekeeping. Please, U.N., keep our peace for us. And they also eventually want them kicked out and will hire Russian mercenaries to help them do it. Got it. And countries such as Niger have been eager to pick up the mantle. In the five years enfolding the end of the Cold War, the U.N., authorized 20 new peacekeeping missions, requiring almost sevenfold growth in the number of troops from 11,000 to 75,000. Today, that number tops 90,000 peacekeepers deployed worldwide. That's a pretty substantially large army. 90,000 troops deployed worldwide in peacekeeping operations. I hope they're not all involved with human trafficking. At the same time, wealthy democracies retreated from peacekeeping, increasing dependence on countries such as Niger, where previous missions largely involved observation along clearly demarcated ceasefire lines. Post-Cold War missions, which are sometimes referred to as second generation peacekeeping, were more demanding and typically bloodier. Troops are now regularly tasked with securing ceasefires between warring parties in ongoing civil wars. Well, that's funny. I remember talking about this back in 2020, that part of the grand plan was to create civil war in the United States and then move in international forces to keep the peace and make sure that the regime could stabilize their control of the United States. In 1990, the top contributors of peacekeepers were Canada, Finland, Austria, Norway, Ireland, the United Kingdom and Sweden, all liberal democracies. <laughs> by 2015, they had been replaced by Bangladesh, Pakistan, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Nigeria, and Egypt, all less democratic states with histories of regime instability. And that is what they always say for, quote unquote, less democratic states, because our democracy worldwide is always trying to take over countries and make them part of our democracy. And so when that can't happen quite so easily, those regions are referred to as unstable and the forces in power have a harder time maintaining control because they are not part of our democracy and our democracy is always trying to take control because they're not able to do it in full. That means these countries are, quote unquote, less democratic states and in need of an Arab Spring or some other kind of color revolution. We can't just allow these countries to run around not being part of our global democracy. While the effects of peacekeeping on the countries where peacekeepers are deployed are positive and well established, the effects on the states that send troops like Niger are heavily contested. Some analysts suggest that peacekeeping has salutary effects for democratization among sending states, socializing them to the norms of human rights and incentivizing them to follow the rule of law because, quote, insubordination, read coups, would jeopardize future missions and the lucrative incentives that accompany them for the peacekeepers who are compensated generously for the task. Oh, by whom? Oh, the global regime, of course. The U.N. spends more than $6 billion on peacekeeping annually, 
much of it going to troop reimbursements and material costs. Where do they get all the money? Peacekeeping remuneration can make up a significant proportion of sending states military budgets, as well as individual soldier take home pay, particularly in less developed countries. Indeed, some countries today are alleged to peacekeep for profit. So the money coming in from UN peacekeeping to a country and its military actually creates a profit for that country. So countries are hiring out their militaries essentially to do the bidding of the United Nations. And those militaries are being assimilated into the goals of the global regime in order to keep getting that business, which profits those countries. And by those countries, of course, they mean the regime leaders in those countries and absolutely in no way possible the people of those nations because they don't share in these kinds of profits. Let's not kid ourselves. But others caution that peacekeeping has more mixed effects, potentially entrenching autocratic rule and contributing to coup propensity in brittle democracies like Niger. I thought they were supposed to stop coups. While peacekeeping may socialize sending states into the cosmopolitan values associated with the United Nations, there are all too many examples where abuses are tolerated and illiberal norms are instead strengthened. Oh, that's weird. Countries don't want the values of the New York Times and the Atlantic imposed upon them by armed international forces. What could be more shocking than that? These people are absolutely insane. And you can see how this is propaganda, right? But of course, this is the good kind of propaganda because it serves our democracy. But let's continue. And in reality, the international community has grown overly dependent on these countries for peacekeeping and has therefore been reluctant to sanction them, even when their behavior departs considerably from liberal norms. Indeed, some states have used peacekeeping to build more muscular armed forces. The result is often a more empowered military throwing off the balance with civil authorities, often in countries with past histories of coups. Niger has seen exponential growth in its own peacekeeping role, today contributing around a thousand troops and security personnel, up from eight in the year 2000. During that time, the international community has lavished funds on Niger. The United States alone has sent roughly $500 million in the last decade, in addition to training and support, to improve its security and enhance its military. And the UN has heaped praise on Niger, thanking it for its peacekeeping contributions. Yet the international community has also grown reluctant to criticize peacekeepers like Niger, often remaining silent in the face of gross human rights violations or democratic backsliding. And peacekeepers have been given license to ignore conditionality, such as the practice of tying aid to democratization. So they send the money in and say, you have to become more of our democracy. And then they don't, and they just keep the money. That reluctance has been visible in the aftermath of the coup. The spokesperson for UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has expressed deep concern for the events in Niger, but the organization has stopped short of issuing sanctions or halting aid in the wake of the coup. And while 
ECOWAS has cut power to the country. It has declined to exercise more forceful action, allowing its ultimatum to expire without consequence. So ECOWAS, this global regime coalition, was initially threatening Niger, even potentially with military action, combined military action. But they haven't done that, even though Niger's military junta completely ignored their threats. But what they did do was cut off power to the country. So they did attempt to make the citizens' lives, the people's lives, very difficult in order to turn them against the junta and to extract concessions. The global regime was unable to act militarily, so instead they decided to attempt at least to torture the people, just as they did in sanctioning Russia at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. They always go after the people, but the junta ignored their threats and simply outlasted them. While the possible causes of coup are overdetermined, states that send peacekeepers with greater foreign training and experience are more likely to experience coups, with the peacekeepers themselves, like Chiani, often responsible. <laughs> so they empowered the guy who then ran the coup. Given peacekeepers' history of predatory behavior at home, the notion that liberal norms somehow rub off in the peacekeeping process is a myth. Oh no, another backfire by the global regime. Evidence from Niger suggests that peacekeeping may have played a role in recent events, providing the junta with greater means, including a more muscular and emboldened military, to interfere in the political affairs of the country. Wait a second. It's their country. So their country's military is interfering in the political affairs of their country, according to the global regime who had been funding their military and attempting to control their military. So which party is interfering in the political affairs of Niger, either the global regime or Niger's own military? Which one is it? The evidence suggests that peacekeeping constitutes a permissive condition for military intervention in politics. It amplifies the risk of coups, but cannot be definitively said to cause them. That poses a challenge for policymakers. The United Nations might consider actions to prevent leakage of funds or material intended solely for peacekeeping. This might be accomplished through greater scrutiny and oversight or the imposition of sanctions against peacekeepers who transgress the norms of the organization. So if the country and its military don't do what the global regime is paying them to do, they are going to figure out ways to punish the country. We might question the wisdom of building the capacity of peacekeeping countries with recent histories of coups. Instead, the U.N. should act to cut off those militaries that engage in coups, as it has threatened but failed to do in the past. For their part, wealthy democracies might assist making up peacekeeping shortfalls by contributing greater numbers of troops themselves rather than paying others to do so. So now the global regime, realizing that its former policy of funding and building the armies of these nations that then turn against the regime and overthrow the regime installed governments, what they're going to need to do is rely on wealthy democracies to supply the troops. They want troops from the United States, from the countries of Europe, maybe from some Asian partners, maybe Canada and who knows where else. 
but they need troops that are going to be loyal to that UN cause. And that means they're going to need the money to make it happen. So we have a trend now of African nations throwing out the global regime, throwing out the UN peacekeeping missions. We know a little bit about the history of UN peacekeeping missions. And now the regime is actually beginning to admit that the UN peacekeeping effort itself might be boomeranging back at them and causing all these coups that get the global regime thrown out in the first place. It's important to note, as ever, that the global regime doesn't seem capable of taking these countries back over, of thwarting these quote-unquote coup efforts. And this trend isn't slowing down. In fact, it's increasing. This is Florida Representative Matt Gates yesterday on X, formerly Twitter. He says it happened again last night. Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Gambia, Chad, Guinea, Niger, now Gabon. Under Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's abysmal tenure, we've gotten seven coups in U.S. Africa command alone. Each overthrow connected to people trained by U.S. taxpayer funds. Want to know where we can cut spending? How about we spend less training people who overthrow elected governments? Now, the way I read this is a bit tongue in cheek. Matt Gates certainly understands the dynamic I'm describing. He's just calling attention to the issue here and highlighting the fake president and the fake administration's ineptitude. This is audio from a hearing on March 23rd of this year. General Langley, just ballpark in the last decade, how many Africans has the United States military trained and equipped? We have trained a substantial number, especially in uh, the Gulf of Guinea uh, states. Um, uh, but in, including like more than 10,000? It is more than 10,000. More than 50,000? I'd say we're, we're reaching around 50,000 50, okay. at least. And, and, and what percentage of the people we've trained end up participating in insurrections or coups against their own government? Very small number. Crowds cheered the military in Gabon on Wednesday after a group of senior officers claimed to have seized power. That television announcement came just minutes after incumbent President Ali Bongo had been announced the winner of a recent election. The officers, who said they represented all Gabonese security and defense forces, said they had decided to defend peace by putting an end to the current regime. The military takeover, if successful, will be West and Central Africa's eighth coup since 2020. So I guess the, the question is, why should U.S. taxpayers be paying to train people who then lead coups in Africa? Congressman, core values is what we start off with in IMA pro programs. I think we should at least know how many countries we train the coup plotters in. Uh, how many is too many? Because clearly two is not too many. And I think we could use our resources far more effectively than doing this. Now, in the middle of that, you heard a news clip about this latest African coup, this time in the country of Gabon. And as always, let's get the official story within the central narrative for one of the global regime's main propaganda mouthpieces about global affairs. This is my go to source because the narrative is always the same, no matter what country and what coup you're talking about. And of course, I'm talking about Reuters, their headline yesterday, Gabon officers declare military coup, President Ali Bongo detained. 
military officers in oil producing Gabon said they had seized power on Wednesday, placing President Ali Bongo under house arrest and naming a new leader after the Central African state's election body announced Bongo had won a third term, saying they represented the armed forces. The officers declared on television that the election results were canceled, borders closed and state institutions dissolved after a tense vote that was set to extend the Bongo families more than half century in power or as the regime says, democratically elected. Within hours, generals met to discuss who would lead the transition and agreed by unanimous vote to appoint General Bryce Olegi Ngema, former head of the Presidential Guard, according to another televised address. Meanwhile, from detention in his residence, Bongo appealed in a video statement to foreign allies, imploring them to speak out on his and his family's behalf. He said he did not know what was happening. Bongo's plight was a dramatic reversal from the early hours of Wednesday when the Electoral Commission declared him the winner of Saturday's disputed vote. Hundreds of people celebrated the military's intervention in the streets of the Gabonese capital, Libreville. While the United Nations, African Union and France, Gabon's former colonial ruler, which has troops stationed there, condemned the coup. The military takeover in Gabon is the eighth in West and Central Africa since 2020 and the second after Niger in as many months. Military officers have also seized power in Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and Chad, erasing democratic gains since the 1990s and raising fear among foreign powers that have strategic interests in the region. So our democracy, as it spreads worldwide, has been spreading within Africa since the 90s. And now these coups are erasing all the gains that our democracy had made. And who is this bad for? Is it bad for the global regime? Is it bad for our democracy worldwide? Or is it bad for the people of Gabon? Well, it doesn't seem to be bad for the people of Gabon, because even as this article admits, they are celebrating in the streets. But they say, of course, that it's just hundreds of people. Bongo took over in 2009 on the death of his father, Omar, who had ruled since 1967. Opponents say the family has done little to share the state's oil and mining wealth with its 2.3 million people. Violent unrest broke out after Bongo's contested 2016 election victory, and there was a foiled coup attempt in 2019. The Gabon officers calling themselves the Committee of Transition and the Restoration of Institutions said the country faced, quote, a severe institutional, political, economic and social crisis, end quote, and that the August 26th vote was not credible. So the one family has been in power for 56 years and they have not shared the wealth with the nation from their production of oil and from their mining. What could that possibly mean? A global regime figure stays in power. His family stays in power for nearly 60 years. The people get absolutely nothing from this resource rich nation that is selling resources to the world. Why? Are African nations poor? Does it have something to do with the exploitation of the global regime and of their colonial masters? How is it that these are third world nations while they are totally on board with the global regime's agenda and continue to have global regime supported leaders in control of everything? So they report that the vote was unreliable. 
They also said they had arrested the president's son, Nuruddin Bongo Valentin, and others for corruption and treason. There was no immediate comment from Gabon's government. Regime-aligned leaders, including ones from ECOWAS, like Nigerian President Bola Tinubu, said that a, quote, contagion of autocracy was spreading across Africa. And that must be what it is as they kick out our democracy. Isn't it incredible that the way the entire world views these things relies on the idea that the elections are actually free and fair, safe and secure, and the reported results accurately reflect the will of the voters? Except why would we ever believe that the global regime allows that? They don't allow it here. They didn't allow it in Brazil. We see country after country after country with essentially the same election system ending up with the same situations of illegitimacy. And I've said many times on this podcast, if you want to see this working throughout the world, just go to any search engine. You can even use the censored and manipulated search engines like Google to find this. Just type in the name of a country, choose an African nation, a Southeast Asian nation, a Middle Eastern nation. Maybe though those don't have the same kind of election systems necessarily, maybe an Eastern European nation. And just type in the name of that country, claims election fraud and Reuters, and read some stories about claims of election fraud surrounding the elections in those countries. You will continuously see narratives that mirror the narrative here. There will be slight variations. Maybe instead of a social justice protest movement, you will have some kind of terrorism. Perhaps they might call it domestic terrorism. Maybe you'll have cartel activity or an issue over mass immigration, but something to destabilize the country. There will be slight variations in the election systems, and then you will hear that things either ended with a court deciding that there was no fraud and everything was just fine, or a coup. The same narrative being reported by the same source throughout the world on slightly different timelines with slight variations. Is this just the natural state of the power balance within countries across the entire world all the time? Or is this a battle for power between the global regime, our democracy worldwide, and the sovereign peoples of the world demanding sovereign leaders and sovereign nations not held under the thumb of the global regime to be exploited for their resources and their labor? Why bother transporting slaves all around the world when you can simply take over nations and enslave everybody right where they are, especially if that's where the resources are? How is it possible that a nation like Gabon is rich in oil and minerals and the 2.3 million people, a very tiny number, can't live well on that? Back to the Reuters article. The coup creates more uncertainty for France's presence in the region. France has about 350 troops in Gabon. Its forces have been kicked out of Mali and Burkina Faso after coups there in the last two years. French miner Aramet which has large manganese operations in Gabon, said it had halted operations. Gabon produces about 200,000 barrels of oil a day, mainly from depleting fields. Oh, sure they are. International companies include France's Total Energies and Anglo-French producer Perenco. Concerns about the weekend elections transparency were raised by a lack of international observers. 
the suspension of some foreign broadcasts, and a decision to cut internet service and impose a nighttime curfew after the vote. Bongo's team rejected allegations of fraud. He just says it didn't happen. His family is actually so beloved for keeping the people impoverished that they reelected his family again, even though they'd already been in control for nearly 60 years. Doesn't that make sense? On Wednesday, the Internet appeared to be working for the first time since the vote. The junta confirmed web access had been restored, as well as all international broadcasts, but it said it would keep the curfew in place until further notice. Shortly before the coup announcement, the election authority declared Bongo the election winner with 64.27% of the vote and said his main challenger, Albert Ando Asa, had secured 30.77%. Gabon's dollar-denominated bonds fell as much as 14 cents on Wednesday before recovering to trade down 9.5 cents on the dollar. Okay, so Bongo's family has been in control for nearly 60 years, and now he has been deposed by the military, causing the people of Gabon to celebrate in the streets. But also, our democracy yielded a reported election result that had Bongo winning the election 64% to 31%. And if you are really on my wavelength, you know what point I'm about to make. The Uniparty supporters, the supporters of the global regime and its evil twin faction in America would say, well, there may have been fraud, but not enough to overcome a 34 point difference. What are you, some kind of conspiracy theorist believing that the regime can just generate any sort of election result it wants, even one that makes absolutely no sense when you can see people celebrating in the streets because the military actually stepped in and removed this corrupt global regime installed leader? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's not just a few votes of fraud. They can actually just create results. But I know it can only happen in one of these third world African nations, right? And that's not racist because you're on the side of the global regime, on the side of our democracy. And everybody knows that the global regime is not racist, even though they pay the leaders, the corrupt leaders of these countries to keep people impoverished for six decades while their labor and their natural resources are exploited by the global regime. So the deposed president, Ali Bongo, released a video statement, strangely in English. Is he trying to talk to his countrymen or is he trying to appeal to people in countries who are part of the global regime? I'm Ali Bongo, on Jimba, president of Gabon, and I'm to send a message to all the friends that we have all over the world to tell them to make noise, to make noise. For the people here have arrested me and my family. My son is somewhere. My wife is is another place, and I'm at the residence right now. I'm in the residence, and nothing happening. Nothing is happening. I don't know what what's going on. So I'm calling you to make noise, to make noise. To make noise, really. I'm, I'm thanking you. Thank you. He sounds very presidential. His son is somewhere. His wife is, I guess, somewhere else. 
He's at a residence and he wants you to make noise. If only Kamala Harris was around to tell everybody how important it was to make noise, make noise, make noise. That's how you are able to defeat the coup plotters. You just go around making noise from all corners of the earth. Make noise, make noise, make noise. Tell everybody to join in the noise. And once there's enough noise, everyone will realize that people from all four corners of the earth encourage military intervention to put this corrupt fool back in power. Now, that article in Reuters mentioned a mining company called Aramet and a very astute member of the X platform responded to one of my posts yesterday, Con Alton. And noted that in the Wikipedia entry for Aramet, it says, wait, what's this? The company was founded with the funding of the Rothschild family. Although they were careful to avoid being listed as founders of the company in 1880. With discretion, the family took full control of the company in 1890. I wonder if maybe in 1880, it would have looked weird for the Rothschilds to be setting up a mining company exploiting the labor of Africans. Now, interestingly, if you look at the map, of African countries where the military has already seized power, you will notice that there is now a land bridge from the east of Africa to the west, from Sudan through Chad, through Niger, through Burkina Faso and Mali, and through Guinea, all the way from the Red Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. The global regime has been removed from power across that entire strip of the African continent. There is also a reshuffling of military leaders happening right now in Cameroon and Rwanda. Now, the question you should be asking yourself is how is any of this possible if the global regime is actually in control, if they have the ability to dictate and control events worldwide, including in places like the United States of America? Why are they losing all of these small nations in Africa and Southeast Asia? The pretty obvious answer is their level of control is absolutely nothing like the global state propaganda media portrays it to be. And if that is not enough of an indication in the shift in the balance of power throughout the world, let's consider this. This is from the Epoch Times reprinted in Zero Hedge. Expanded bricks set to de-dollarize the world control global energy supply. The expansion of BRICS has made it clear that the de-dollarization of the international finance system is inevitable. This view from economist William Gumede, who's also executive chairperson of the Democracy Works Foundation in South Africa, has been echoed around the world since BRICS leaders announced the expansion of the bloc on August 24th at a summit in Johannesburg. The article's a bit long. I would recommend it to you if you want to get the whole picture. But there are some interesting quotes here from Mr. Gumede who the article notes is one of South Africa's leading academics and thought leaders who has been researching the potential impacts of de-dollarization since 2014. Some quotes from the article. These forecasts did not take into account that BRICS would expand its membership very quickly. A larger BRICS will mean the world will increasingly use U.S. dollars less. And he is making the point that that transition is happening faster than projected. He says BRICS is going to dominate the world's energy supply. 
The strength of the U.S. dollar is also partially based on the currency as underpinning oil trade, the so-called petrodollar, and members of OPEC settle their accounts in U.S. dollars. Therefore, enlarging BRICS to also include the oil producers and persuading them to use a new BRICS currency rather than the U.S. dollar to settle their accounts will be a game changer. It is likely to accelerate the de-dollarization of the world. Mr. Gumede noted that Russia is selling a whole lot of oil to China and added, the euro, a common currency, is stable because it's underpinned by stable political regimes in a stable part of the world. Wherever you look in BRICS, there's instability, like in Russia because of the Ukraine war. What would happen to the BRICS currency if China invades Taiwan? He says BRICS countries have been buying oil and gas from Moscow, insulating Russia against isolation by the United States and the EU. The article contains a few quotes from a man named Jackie Silliers, who is the head of the African Futures and Innovation Program at the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria. And I will go through the end of this article where he is quoted a couple of times. According to the International Energy Agency, China and India bought 80% of Russia's oil in May 2023, with China buying 2.2 million barrels a day. Leslie Mastdorp, chief financial officer of the BRICS financial mechanism, the New Development Bank, told the Epoch Times, BRICS countries were prepared to conduct business with one another in domestic currencies. But, he added, they were not yet ready to issue a common currency that could challenge the dollar. The creation of a global alternative currency to the dollar is a medium to long-term ambition rather than an immediate possibility, said Mastorp. Even the Chinese renminbi is very far from becoming a global reserve currency. Mr. Siliers said it was also likely that intensifying rivalry between China and India would slow de-dollarization, and they're just potentially making that up. Naturally, this is from the perspective of the global regime, so they are going to be telling the global regime's story. It seems rather unlikely that India and China are going to have an intensifying rivalry while forming this common currency alliance. Mr. Silliers suggested that the expansion of BRICS now and in the future should not be seen as an automatic sign that developing countries were uniting behind a, quote, simplistic common vision, end quote, of overthrowing the West. Yeah, I mean, that is such a simplistic vision. Many people have this view that if Russia and China in particular snap their fingers and say, de-dollarize now, that other BRICS countries are just going to listen to the master's voice. Believe me, there is deep resentment within BRICS and within the wider global South about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the harm it continues to sow in developing countries, causing inflation spikes, for example, and even grain shortages. Countries' motivations for wanting to join BRICS differ, but what stays the same is that few, if any, Global South nations will exchange one hegemon with another. So apparently, although the sky might fall really quickly, it is just not falling, everybody. Just relax. These countries that are forming this common currency coalition and throwing the global regime out of their nations, they're not doing any of this to overthrow the West. They're probably just having some growing pains with our democracy.
I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. 
If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!